Well, it is certainly good to see everyone here tonight at Community, and thank you, too, to those of you who may be joining us online. I'd like to draw your attention to God's Word right at the outset this evening, so would you join me in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2, and if you'll find that place, I think you'll find it's a familiar story, but we'll read the verses that we'll be looking at in this particular chapter tonight. Not all the verses here, but we'll be looking at these. Begin reading in verse number 1, I'll be reading down through verse 21 in Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told king of Jericho, Behold, men from Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inheritance of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver them their, our lives from death. And the men said to her, our lives for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall or on the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the, pursu uh, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. When afterward, then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household, then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be, shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. 
But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the the scarlet cord in the window. So we'll end our reading there. And if you'll bow your heads with me and close your eyes, we'll pray and we'll ask God's blessing. Oh God in heaven, tonight we come into your presence boldly, not because of who we are, but because we have been told that we may come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And truth be told, Lord, the longer we live, the more we understand that every day and every time and every moment is an hour of need. Some we feel and sense more poignantly than others, but we know that we need you every day, moment by moment. And so tonight we come to you because we realize whether speaking here tonight, I cannot speak apart from the power of the Spirit of God to accomplish anything of spiritual consequence in the hearts and lives of men and women, boys and girls. And on the part of the audience, it is also true that we cannot hear without the Spirit of God directing and blessing our lives. Our ears may be open and words may pass through, but for them to penetrate our hearts, for them to do spiritual good and encourage us, then we realize we are dependent upon you. And so we pray tonight for your blessing on this service. I pray that the word of the Lord may be glorified and have free course in our midst. I pray that you will set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth and keep the door of my lips. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, I would like to bring you a message tonight. You see the title there, Rahab, Overcoming Shame. So what are we doing? Because we spent four weeks talking about the book of Ruth and talking about Naomi. And in a broader sense, what we're doing is I'd like to continue the theme that we were working on, although I really hadn't announced it so much with Naomi, because what we were doing in the book of of Ruth was considering Naomi from the standpoint of using Naomi as a case study in bitterness. But if you think about it, if you wanted to talk about Naomi, you could also talk about women overcoming adversity. And so in that broader sense, I'd like to continue on in that vein. And tonight, I've chosen to speak about Rahab, and the message is entitled, Overcoming Shame. Now, these women are somewhat closely related in time, which makes this, I think, all the more interesting, because Naomi is probably a generation later, and or they're roughly speaking, or thereabouts, and Rahab a generation earlier. So... They're roughly speaking living in the same context of biblical history, the same time. Naomi has a problem she had to deal with and had to overcome by God's grace. And by God's grace she did. The problem was bitterness. We spent four weeks talking about that. If Rahab has a challenge that she has to overcome, I would use the word shame for us to consider the challenge or the adversity that Rahab found in her life. Shame is a problem, but it's not just a problem that Rahab faced. In truth and indeed, it is a problem that we all face. Because if you think about what shame is, it's simply the reproach that we feel and bear. So we have an emotion and we have also an outward response many times to it, but the reproach that we feel and bear as a result of guilt. 
Well, where does guilt come from? Guilt comes from sin. And the way I read and understand the Bible, we are all sinners. There is no one who does good and doesn't sin, but all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So since we have this commonality with her, Rahab, maybe not the commonality of the way she sinned, but we have this commonality that all of us are sinners. All of us have guilt in our lives, and in that sense, all of us have to deal with shame. In fact, when you look in the, you get a, you get a, a sense of what this is really all about when you look for the first reference to shame in the Bible, and you don't find the word shame as such, you find the word ashamed. Ashamed. You find it as the past tense verb. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. So we're, we're in the scene of the Garden of Eden. And it's the last verse of the chapter. And it tells us something that obviously sets apart what went on there in the beginning, especially in Genesis chapter 2, from everything going forward. And this note is given to us, not in any sense to be suggestive or salacious, anything of that nature. It's given to us to make this point. When it says the man and the woman were in the garden, they were naked and they were not ashamed. So if you think about it, why was that true? They didn't have anything to be ashamed of. They didn't know anything like what we know today because they didn't have any experiential knowledge of sin. The only thing they really knew was they were in an idyllic place, a perfect surrounding. There were trees there that they could enjoy and there was one tree that they were told not to have anything to do with insofar as eating of it. But other than that, they knew nothing about the subject of sin. Would God it were so that way today? Would God we had never been enlightened? Would God we have never experienced and been scarred and had to bear the shame that results from guilt that comes from sin in our lives? It all changes dramatically because right away in the very next chapter, it's the cool of the day. The Lord God comes as He had been accustomed to come normally to converse with them, to fellowship. He doesn't find, and this is all depicted to us in kind of a human scene, which is what it is anyway, but he doesn't find them, and so he calls out to Adam, where art thou? And where is Adam? Well, he's cowering, he's hiding with Eve. He's gone to the shadows, he's gone to the recesses of the garden. Why is that? Because he's ashamed of, he's ashamed to be in God's presence. He knows he's disobeyed God. He knows he's done wrong. And the symbol of that that we carry right to this very day, the humiliation is he tries to cover that shame. In vain, of course, fig leaves don't do a very good job. You know, if you ever think about that very much, they're going to wither up before long, long and you're going to be left in sad shape. Everything that man ever tries to do in and of his own thinking and in and of his own works to deal with guilt and to deal with shame always and quickly and eventually comes to naught. So in talking about Rahab tonight, what I really want to do is explore this subject because Rahab is like Naomi. The adversity, the problem, the challenge that's in her life, she overcomes. And it's really important, even if you don't identify in the sense of background with Naomi, it's really important that every single person in this room tonight understands how to overcome guilt in the final sense and, over, and understand what the biblical remedy for that is. We're going to see it in our story tonight. 
So what I'd like to do in presenting this to you is talk about Rahab in three tenses. We'll talk about the Rahab of the past. We'll talk about the Rahab of the present. And we'll talk about the Rahab of the future. Now, it's kind of interesting when you look at this first main point and you see, wow, only has one verse to talk about this first whole main point. Only need one verse. It says it all right there. Let's look at the verse again. It simply says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they came and went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. So everything up into this point, when we read the story about the spies and what happens subsequently, is all introduced to us in this first verse, and the description of Rahab sums it all up. What was Rahab's past? Well, it was dubious, to say the least. It was an immoral past. It was a sinful past. Not to make more of this sin than any other, but we certainly know that Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but the Bible tells us explicitly, whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. And ladies and gentlemen, we can be living in a licentious age, and we can be living in a day when people live together without the benefit of marriage, and people cheat on their spouse all the time, and that is not really regarded unless you're in politics and get caught when you're running for something. Other than that, it's basically just kind of, well, we kind of, well, it's so common. But we would make a mistake to think that God has changed his view of it because God hasn't changed his view of it. And the Bible is very clear about this. So here we have a word that describes Rahab. Now, lest you think that this is an isolated case and that I'm making more of this than really what is warranted, that's not the case because this is actually the consistent portrait that is found in the Bible concerning Rahab. And I can demonstrate that to you statistically, and we're not going to turn to all the verses. We'll look at some of them. We've already seen some of them, and we'll probably see the rest before the message is over. But for now, let me just give you this statistical analysis. There are eight references in the Bible, Old and New Testament, to the person that we're talking about tonight, Rahab. The reason I say it that way is because you do have some poetical references to Rahab that don't have anything to do with a person. They have to do with something else. But to this person, this historical figure that we're talking about tonight, there are eight references to her by name in the Bible. All right? Of those five, so five out of eight, Call her Rahab the harlot. Even when you get over into the New Testament, you have three verses that refer to Rahab in the New Testament, and two out of those three refer to her as Rahab the harlot. So it isn't that the Bible is trying to rub Rahab's nose in this. It's not that the Bible is trying to, with glee, point out this difficulty in Rahab's life. It's more that the Bible wants us to get a point about this woman, because she is going to become an object of God's grace. And God wants us to understand something about his grace, and God has chosen to use this woman as an object of his grace. And so we continually get this reminder about who Rahab was, so that there's absolutely no chance that we can mistake what happens in her life for anything but the grace of God. 
But that is consistently. Let me give you the verses. Chapter 2, verse 1, which we read. Then we get over to chapter 6. We haven't gone there yet. We will. But in verse 17 and verse 25, it's Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the harlot. It, harlot is the King James translation of it. You get to the New Testament. Hebrews eleven thirty-one. Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. James chapter 2, verse 25, Rahab the prostitute. Now, what's interesting, we have another verse in Joshua chapter 6 where the story is finished concerning, well, almost finished, but in Joshua where it's finished concerning Rahab. Doesn't refer to her by name, but the context is talking about her. She's actually named in the verse just before this because that's uh, chapter 6, verse 17. Uh, but in verse, or just before this, in the context, but in verse 22, She's simply referred to as the harlot. Her name doesn't appear in that particular reference, but her name is in the context and it's clearly talking about her. So let's do this now. Let's add to five one and what do you get? Six. You have eight references, five or uh, eight references to her by name. You add this one on. Let's just keep the number at eight for a moment because it makes it even and say that we have six. Well, you can do it either way. It, it, it you know, they, you remember this 125 years ago when I was in school, they were teaching us that you, when you got these fractions, you were supposed to reduce them, right? They still teach that? Well, anyway, if you have six out of eight, that's three quarters, isn't it? That's 75%. If you have six out of nine, so you add one because her name isn't in the verse, you have six out of nine, that's two thirds. Do you begin to get a point? Do you begin to get the fact that this is really how the Bible has chosen to portray Rahab to us so that when we think of her, we, we're constantly reminded of what her past is. I'll tell you something, beloved, before we go any further. You can be too preoccupied with your past and have it to be unhealthy, but on the other hand, you can forget your past and that can be just as unhealthy. We're not in any chance of doing that concerning Rahab. She's always portrayed in this sense in the Bible. So that when you think of Rahab's past, you think of someone who's tarnished. You think of someone who bears reproach because of the shame that was in her life. In fact, maybe I could put it to you this way, and it would be somewhat memorable, at least in terms of the message tonight. It's almost like Rahab is presented to us as the woman of the well of the Old Testament. I'm sure you can also remember from school, those of you who have come past this point, Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic work, The Scarlet Letter. Do you remember the story? you remember how you have one of the main characters, Hester Prynne? She's involved with someone. She refuses to disclose exactly who this is, but she's married. She's involved with someone else. She has a child out of wedlock. So this is called adultery. And in the context of the book and in the context of her day societally, this was something that was not smoothed over so much like it is today. And as part of the punishment for what she had done, her adultery, she was forced to mount a public scaffold, not to be hung, but simply to be there for three hours in abject humiliation. That's one part. 
You remember what the second part was. She was also, as part of her punishment, forced to wear in perpetuity on her dress or dresses a large scarlet letter A. I want you to think about this for a moment tonight because somehow we need to get into this story and we need to identify with Rahab. We don't all sin alike, but we are all alike sinners. And so whether this particular sin is in our past or has even predominated in any way in our lives, each of us has shame. In fact, I would venture to maybe try to help you think about it this way tonight a little bit. Just don't look around, just think. But what if all of a sudden the person sitting to your left and to your right all of a sudden knew everything about your life that you know? How do you think you would feel? Do you think you would feel humiliated? Do you think you would feel shame? Well, I'll answer you that question right now. I just wouldn't have come to church tonight. Much less come up here and try to present God's Word. It's terrible, beloved. This is a huge problem, and it results from sin and guilt in our lives. And this is where Rahab is, and the reason that we need to identify with her before we leave this is because everybody has a past. Everybody has a, a, a life that was before meeting Jesus Christ. That is, if you're here tonight and you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, you have a pre-Christ life, an unforgiven life, an uncleansed life. And in that sense, we're not any different. We're tarnished. We would be utterly humiliated if people knew the extent to which sin permeates our past, our thoughts, our actions, and for that matter, to some extent, even in the present. I think that that's true. Well, let's go on and talk about the Rahab of the present because this is really where the guts of the message, so to speak, are, and we need to spend a little bit more of our time. You see... Things change really quickly in the story, and that's why we only need one verse. It makes the point that Rahab was a prostitute, Rahab was a harlot. But things change really quickly because the whole story now begins to develop the Rahab of the present. That is, once she met the spies, and once she evidenced faith in Jehovah, Everything about Rahab in the present is about redemption. You see, Rahab, in verse number 12, if you look there for a moment, Rahab is saying to the men, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. So what I want you to do for a moment, maybe a couple moments, is to think with me about what we know about the symbolism. Somehow Rahab wants assurance. I, I treasure that, do you? I think that's one of the greatest gifts that you and I can have tonight is the assurance. I mean, if you were to come up to me and ask a stock question, I know it's a stock question, but 
many times you can ask this question with a great deal of sincerity and people today haven't really heard this question asked so much. But if you were to come up to me and ask me, do you know if you died today, you'd go to heaven? I could tell you yes and not bat an eye. There was a time I couldn't do that. In fact, God used that very thing in my life because when I started to attend a Bible-believing church and I had been going there and had heard the gospel and understood all of this and God was working in my heart about these matters, a man came up and asked me that very question. And I have to tell you with some degree of shame that I wasn't completely forthright with him. I wasn't honest because... I told him yes, when in reality I was struggling, deeply struggling with that. So we can all understand what's going on here. Rahab knows something about what's imminent, and she wants assurance that she's going to be exempted, that she's not going to fall under this destruction and this death knell. And the sign that they give to her is this scarlet cord. Well, what do we know about scarlet? Scarlet, of course, is that bright red color that reminds us of blood. And then we develop the thought a little bit more and we realize that Rahab and all who belong to Rahab are safe only to the extent, and this is the arrangement, the oath that she worked out with these men. She was safe only to the extent that she was in that house. Were she or anyone else in that house to step outside when the children of Israel came and that destruction was brought upon the city of Jericho, she would have forfeited her life. She would have been exposed to the very same judgment that everyone else was exposed to. You know, this just is a little bit too much typical of what we know of other things to be by chance. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm thinking about Exodus 12 and verse 3, which uses the exact same terminology. It shall be a sign. This is what she asks for is a sure sign. What's the sign when the death angel passes through the land? What's the sign that the people inside that place are exempted from the death angel and the destruction that he brings, the judgment that he's bringing on the land of Egypt? Well, it's the blood stricken on the lintel on either side. The blood shall be for you a sign on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Rahab and her people are safe if they're behind. And by the way, it's very interesting that what's prescribed by these men is that that scarlet cord be hung in the window. The window through which she was let down. Well, she was let, they closed the gates of the city. There was no other way for these guys to get out. Providentially, her house was on the wall, so... She let them down by a rope through that window and the men tell them, tell her, you put that scarlet cord and, and drape it in this window. Well, this is no mistake because when the children of Israel marched around Jericho six days, one time, seven, seven times the seventh day, if a house is on the wall and you're looking and it's got a clear bright red cord, scarf, whatever it was, somehow hung in that window, you would see that. And you would know this is the place. This is the only place that's exempt from destruction in this city. You had to be in the house where the blood was in the land of Egypt. 
You had to be in the ark to be safe. It takes us to a different illustration. There's no blood in particular mentioned here, but the analogy holds. And in Genesis 7:16, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. Noah and his three sons and their wives were only safe insofar as they were in that ark. And talking about redemption, when we come to the New Testament, we know what redemption is all about, and we know what is the agent of redemption. Let's just look at it here from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 and 20, knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Let's just read this for your sake, since we're not reading verse 21. So the Rahab of the present, it's all about redemption. And you may say to yourself, well, okay, so... I understand what you're saying. I can see these parallels. And we know enough about what the New Testament reveals as well as Old Testament background to know that redemption is freedom that we obtain through the payment of a debt. That debt we know from the New Testament to be sin. And that price paid for our redemption we know to be the blood of Christ. So we know this background and we can see how this stacks up. But you're thinking, you know, they didn't know much about the gospel like in the same terms we do today. So this is a good story, but how did all of this really happen? Well, I'll grant you they didn't know every every point of theology that we know today because it just hadn't all been revealed to the extent that it is in Scripture today. But sometimes I think we make a mistake by thinking that they didn't know more than what we think they knew. But I can point out to you this. I can tell you that this redemption that was the secret of Rahab's overcoming the shame and guilt that was in her life. It all came about exactly as redemption comes about for you and me today. It came about by grace through faith. How do I know this? Well, let's talk about grace for a moment. She's under the same condemnation that everyone else in that place is under. Let's see how she rephrases this when she's speaking to them. Look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up upon the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord... Now look at this. This is precious to know. I know... I know that the Lord has given you. You see this all in caps. She's speaking as a pagan woman who's now talking about Jehovah. And she says, I know that the Jehovah has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and when what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you, and this is what we've got to see, this phrase right here, this verb, whom you devoted to destruction. That's really important for us to see because, folks, here's what's going to happen. That verb is the very same, it's translated here, devoted to destruction. It's a, it's a general word in the sense that you can devote something to God for a good purpose. But when something is given over to God's judgment, then the expression comes out this way. And this is how the ESV translates it. 
The King James says something to the effect of utterly destroy. But the Canaanite civilization, as you know, God commanded Moses was all devoted to, given over to. The iniquity of the Amorites had most certainly become full and God prescribed that that entire land would fall under the ban, devoted to destruction. Judgment was now at last going to fall on that land. So that verb is very important. In fact, let's move forward so that we can see this. She realizes something else. Let's just look at verse 13 before we leave briefly the chapter. She realizes that what this really amounts to is death. She says that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Does this sound like anything familiar to you? She knows that she, like every other person in that city, is under the condemnation of God's judgment, and that condemnation is death. Soul that sinneth that shall die. The wages of sin is death. This is all Bible truth that we know. This is what Rahab is talking about coming to realize. She says, I know. And when I see, and when we saw that you carried this out with respect to Sihon and Og, we realized that we were next. All right, let's move forward because this verb is so very important. In all the stories that we have between now and chapter 11, all the cities, all the battles... That very word is used. This is exactly what Joshua did. He utterly destroyed them or he devoted them to destruction. Until we get over to chapter 11, which is a summary chapter, let's turn there for just a moment. And I want to show you a couple verses there that I don't necessarily have up on the screen. I have the reference for you. Chapter 11, verse 12. Let's have a look. It says here, And all the cities of whose kings and all their kings Joshua captured. This is summarizing now the battles that Joshua fought. And struck them down with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction. But now there's a phrase. This is is crucial to see because this is what enters into Rahab's knowledge and thinking. This is what she understands. It says, as the Lord commanded Moses... As just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Then drop down to verse 20 in the same chapter. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So what's Rahab saying? Rahab's saying, we're aware of this. We're aware of what Moses commanded you, Joshua. We know that the land of Canaan is under God's judgment, that it's given over to utter destruction. In fact, I don't want to take time for this, but let's just read verse 2 of this. Did Moses, in fact, receive this commandment from God? He most certainly did, and there's several places in the Pentateuch where we have this, but look at this, just verse 2. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. This is what Rahab says she knows. So, she is under the same condemnation, and yet she's spared. Now, how does that happen if it doesn't happen by grace? 
if you are under condemnation, if you justly deserve the judgment of God, and yet you are spared that, we have two terms for that. We call it mercy and we call it grace. And I like the simple definitions sometimes. They work well, especially with preaching. You know, mercy is God not giving us what we deserve and grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. I can make three quick observations, but this is really an outline in and of itself. So I have problems with that because I could go for a while, but I can't. First of all, let's make the middle observation. This grace is free. Whenever you talk about God's free grace, what do you mean? Well, you mean two things. First of all, you mean God is under no obligation to give it. Is God obligated to you tonight? Only for judgment. Anything else you get of His blessing is grace. So it means that God is under no obligation to do this, but it also means that there is no merit. There is no reason that God has to owe you something. God doesn't owe you anything. This grace is free. It's obvious from the story. It's the whole reason the Bible keeps making the point. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. She obviously has no merit. And what is grace if it is not God's unmerited favor? Sometimes we make these things a whole lot more complicated than we really need to. Do you need more than that tonight? It might be nice to know something more, but to me, that's a lot to know. That I am the recipient. Not of God's judgment, which is what I merit, which is what I do deserve, but of His unmerited favor. And He's given to me grace. The redemption that I have in Christ Jesus is a product of His grace. We can also make the first observation. This grace is sovereign. People get scared sometimes when you start talking about the sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of man. And there's no need for that. I know people have argued about those things for hundreds of years, and I'm not trying to say that I'm smarter than ever. A lot of the argument is just useless, wasted time. In fact, it's about as helpful, really, as all the... If you looked at the commentary literature on this, you'd see what I was talking about. The commentators spill an ocean of ink, troubling themselves to try to explain, because it seems like a little bit of errant judgment, that the spies went to a house the house of a prostitute. Now, why'd they do that? And we're all worked up about this. We've got to explain how they somehow had this lapse in judgment and hurt their testimony. You know, these guys are in warfare. They're not thinking too much about their testimony. And I think from a human standpoint, there's a simple explanation of this. It's really not what I want to talk about, but I'll tell it to you. And if you if you don't agree, that's fine with me. It doesn't hurt my feelings at all. But I don't see what would be too surprising about men and even strange men going to and from the house of a harlot. That's kind of what you would grow to expect. It's kind of what you would be familiar with seeing if you knew anything about Rahab and knew about her neighborhood. So this may be nothing more than the fact that these spies know this is a good ruse. Don't know, can't prove that. I don't really need to waste my time on it because I think it misses the whole point to spend so much time arguing about it. I think the greater point is the bigger picture. Who directed their footsteps to this place? And when I back off and I look at the bigger picture and I'm saying of all the places that they might have gone in Jericho and they go to this particular woman's house 
And then I look at the fact that God has already chosen before the foundation of the world to make her an object of His saving, redeeming grace. So that God is the one who directs them to that place because God has determined to show her mercy and grace. When I think about that, I just get so excited. And I realize that God's grace to me was free. God's grace to me was sovereign. I didn't deserve anything. I didn't have anything to do with it. And to me, you can solve this whole problem, at least in the practical day-by-day sense, by simply asking yourself this question. If you want to debate about man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, you think about your salvation and just ask yourself this simple question. Who made the first move? So, it happened in your life, right, because you wised up one day. And you said, you know, I'm in a bad way here. I better do something. All the other people are crazy. I'm going to go inside the ark. Well, that maybe is how you think of it when you're first saved. The more you get down the road of grace, and the more you get down the road of Christian living, and the more you delved into the Scripture, the more you realize, you know, I didn't have anything to do with that. God sent those people who talked to me because God wanted to work in my life. And you know what? And the same thing was true of Rahab. God sent those people for her to have that conversation with Him, for that transaction to be done, because God had determined to show her His grace. Not because she deserved it, but because it was for his good pleasure and because it would glorify his name. Now, that to me is shouting material. I can make you another observation. It was abounding because, see, this is the point again. She was a harlotute. She was a prostitute. But you know, you can't have a mountain of sin too high for God's grace to overcome. This is what Paul is trying to tell us. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You don't have sin bigger than God's grace. God's grace always can overcome your sin. So I'm here to tell you something tonight that ought to well up in your heart and make you glad. You don't have a past. You don't have a sin problem here tonight that God can't reach down and in His grace forgive. That's grace. We've got to hasten. That happened also through faith. Isn't this what we say? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Where do we see faith? Well, this is kind of what she's describing to us. If you look back at verse number 11, have a look there for a moment. And as soon as we heard, our hearts melted. All right, now look, something's going on in their hearts. But what's going on in Rahab's heart is different than what's going on in the hearts of everybody else who's there. How do I know that? It leads out to a different place. So, for example, when we come over to the New Testament and we look at Hebrews 11.31, I'm going to show you where it leads out to in the case of Rahab. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Well, this word that's translated in this verse, King James says, believe not. That's okay. So is this translation. But you study this word, and what you find out is it, it's, it's the Greek word to persuade, but negated. So just like we have suffixes, or I should say prefixes, that we put on the front of words like un to invalidate them, that's what this word is. These people refused to be persuaded. They were unpersuadable. They knew the same things. They heard about... Ba- 
Sihon and Og. They heard about what God told Moses and Moses told Joshua that they would be given over to utter destruction. But you know what? It led out to a different place. Every single one of them was unpersuaded. They would not believe. They were disobedient. But Rahab believed. This is what the New Testament is telling for us in Hebrews 11.31. And it's the exact point that James is making on the other side of the street to say that we can know that her faith was valid because in the eyes of men it was validated by her actions. There's no There's no problem between Paul or the author of the Hebrews and James. It's just two sides of the same coin. You know, I heard a story because it was in a devotional years ago. I I don't know that I read it at the time it came out, but there was a story years ago in the Daily Bread. We know the story is true because the fellow who gave the story was quoted in the story, and he he was actually on the scene at the time it happened, but he was a young boy of perhaps junior age and attending a Christian camp in the summer. And they had a boy that was with him in their cabin who had some type of a what they call a spastic paralysis. Sounds bad to me. I wouldn't want that. But the net effect, at least insofar as the way they picked on him, it's sad to say in a Christian camp, but it was true, it, it caused his speech to be slurred. He couldn't talk just quite right. One night, their cabin was called on to do devotions, and those boys, in an effort to poke more fun at this kid who had this spastic paralysis and didn't talk right, they asked if he would give the devotion. So when it was time for him to give the devotion, he sat up and he stood up, and he said one sentence. And that sentence was this, and I can't imitate how he said it. But everybody heard it. Jesus loves me and I love Jesus. That man telling this story later said that whole place fell under conviction. Like It was like God drove a snowplow right into that cabin. A snowplow of conviction. And revival broke out in that place. Many of those junior high Kids right there in that cabin that night began to cry. And revival gripped the camp. You see, that's what happens when God is working. That's what happened in the heart of Rahab. She heard the same things that the rest of them heard, but a different result obtained because God was working. And you know, I hope you heard him say it this morning, but Pastor Andrew hit the nail on the head when he called attention to that verse at the end of Acts chapter 18 and said he loved the phrasing of it. you got to go back and look at that if you missed that point in the sermon this morning. It talked about those who had believed through grace. It's the only thing making the difference here. It's the only reason she had a different outcome is because God is at work. So ladies and gentlemen... Before I finish this message tonight, you know something we've got to figure out is, are we the recipients of that grace in and through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus? Ephesians 1 says, and 1, 7 says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Have you experienced that tonight? Because if not, you have the unresolved problem of guilt and it's concomitant outworking shame or reproach in your life. And you will never be able to deal with it and you will never overcome it apart from the redemption that is in Christ Jesus which comes to us as a product of by God's grace through faith. 
in Christ alone. Well, I only have time to say a word or two about this, but we'll at least pay it passing regard. Come over to chapter 6 because the story isn't over yet, so you've got to see something. In verse 23, the battle's over. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought her out, her and her relatives, and put them, what's that say? Outside the camp. Why? Because she was unclean. She was not only a Canaanite, she was a harlot. And it would have been an unclean thing in the camp of Israel, but you know that doesn't stand. If you read down to verse 25, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And look at this. She has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. That's the Rahab of the future. So that when we look at this, we find that as gradually as her faith in Jehovah was recognized, she was accepted into the nation of Israel just like anybody else would have been accepted into the nation of Israel. Do you know that Matthew 1.5, and I don't have time for this, except just to summarize it for you, Matthew 1.5 tells us she's in the lineage of Christ, but more importantly, we find out what happened. She marries a man by the name of Salmon. I know you don't remember it, but if we were to go to the end of Ruth chapter 4, the end of the book of Ruth, it tells us about this when it says, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz. This woman, Rahab, is the mother of Boaz. She marries a man by the name of Salmon. And Matthew 1.5 tells us this. I'd say that we've moved from reproach to seeing what the answer to it is in redemption, to seeing God give her back her life and more. We sang a little bit earlier, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And you know, beloved, I think in this day in which we live, we are so conditioned by all these discussions from all these high-sounding intellects about self-esteem that we're maybe of the thought that when John Newton wrote those words, saved a wretch like me, that was maybe just some hyperbole, maybe that was just some poetic exaggeration. No, that's not true. Newton knew exactly what he was talking about and meant exactly what he wrote. John Newton was born to a home that had a devout Christian woman in it as his mother. But she died when he was seven. She did her best in those years she had him to teach him the scriptures. By the time he was 11, his father was a naval captain. He went to sea for the first time. I'm sure all of us recognize that the, the life of a naval Career is often a very wicked and corrupt one. But Newton, adding to that, was the rebellious type. And he soon got in trouble with the Royal Navy. And the Royal Navy, after punishing him and not knowing what better else to do with him, they finally bartered him off to a slaver, a, a slave ship. In other words, not as a slave himself, but it was a slave ship. It was a ship involved in the slave trade. Newton talked about that aspect of his life later. He said, I went to Africa. This is what Newton said. I went to Africa that I might be free to sin to my heart's content. 
Well, God has a way of turning those things upside down on us. And it wasn't very long in Africa before Newton found himself enslaved. Found himself enslaved to a black woman. Was herself a slave. But you know, God has something in store for him. And one day, one night maybe, I can envision this in the night, maybe in the day as well, Newton in desperation set a signal fire. And a ship that was sailing down the coast, backheaded in the direction of England, saw that signal fire God was involved in all of this because it so happened that Newton's father, the naval captain, had told his friends if they, if they came across him in any way to try to rescue him. That ship passed by, saw that signal fire. The captain stopped, sent a longboat in. Newton was recovered. He's on his way back to England. The date is March 10, 1748. You know this story about how this storm comes down on that ship and Newton is joining everyone else at the pumps in desperation because the ship is taking on water faster than they can deal with it. And he finds himself uttering something to the captain that he hasn't thought of or said or vocalized in any way in in years when he says, Mercy, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. Later he wrote, Mercy, mercy, what mercy can there be for me? This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy in many years. But you know God heard that cry for mercy. And Newton was saved and later he wrote of it. He said, my prayer for mercy was like the cry of the ravens, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. You talk about being given your life back like Rahab was given her life back. John Newton goes back to England. He becomes a clerk. He marries his teenage sweetheart, a woman by the name of Mary Catlett. He goes from being a clerk to a preacher to also writing hymns and who wrote what is probably the most popular, most well-known hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. We come all the way into the early part of the 19th century. The date is December 21, 1807. Newton is 82 years old. He's on his deathbed. He breathes his final words. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. He wrote his own epitaph. Have you heard it before? Here it is. John Newton, clerk. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. But I can drill this down to where you and I live, maybe in another way, with another song. Newton had a friend. In fact, Newton ministered a lot to this particular friend. Newton had a friend by the name of William Cooper. And together they collaborated. They produced the well-known only hymnal. But Cooper wrote another song. In that particular song, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. How about this? The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. It would be towards the end of the 19th century, almost a 100 years not quite later, after Newton passed off the scene, that another man passed off the scene. 
This man probably has no equal anywhere, anytime. They call him the last of the Puritans. They call him the Prince of Preachers. And in his death and funeral and on his tombstone, you find some more words from Cooper's song. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. Spurgeon, talking about having a lisping, stammering tongue? But you see, there it is. This is how you overcome guilt and shame in your life. I know we need to close. I probably know it better than you do. But I want to ask you this. Have you ever experienced this redeeming grace of God in your life? Could you answer the question I posed a while ago? If you died today, do you know you would go to heaven? Or are you struggling with this? And you've heard the gospel and heard the gospel and you've grown up in a church-like community and you know the gospel, but you've never made peace with God. Or somehow you hear this message and it's just, is guilt still racks your life and you do everything you can think of to overcome that. You never will apart from the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you tonight for your amazing grace. We can only pray that having been its recipients, we will have such a desire of gratitude well up in our hearts to serve you that also we will have the desire to tell others when you give us opportunity, help us to be soul conscious. Help us to be looking for those opportunities. And if there would be anybody here tonight or under the sound of this message at any time who doesn't know you, May they covenant, may they determine they need to talk to someone, they need to get this resolved as soon as possible, that they will be born again, that they will come to know you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.